As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. Michael Levin's work on regulating intractable pattern formation in living systems has made him one of the most compelling biologists of our time. In translation, this means that his team is sussing out how to develop limbs, regenerate limbs, how to generate minds, and even life extension by manipulating electric signals rather than genetics or epigenetics. His work is something that I consider to be worthy of a Nobel Prize, and I don't think I've said that about anyone on the podcast. Michael Levin's previous podcast on Toe is in the description. That's a solo episode with him where we go into a two-hour deep dive, as well as there's a theolocution, so that is him and another guest, just like today, except between Carl Friston and Chris Fields on consciousness. Yosha Bach is widely considered to be the pinnacle of an AI researcher, dealing with emotion, modeling, and multi-agent systems. A large focus of Bach's is to build a model of the mind from strong AI. Speaking of minds, Bach is one of the most inventive minds in the field of computer science, and has appeared several times on Toho prior. Again, there's a solo episode. There's also a theolocution between Yosha Bach and Donald Hoffman on consciousness, and Yosha Bach and John Verveke also on consciousness and reality. Biology has much to teach us about artificial intelligence, and vice versa. This discussion between two brilliant researchers is something that I'm extremely lucky, blessed, fortunate to be a part of, as well as us as collective, as an audience, are fortunate enough to witness. Thank you and enjoy this theolocution between Yosha Bach and Michael Levin. Welcome, both Professor Michael Levin and Yosha Bach. It's an honor to have you on the Toll Podcast, again, both of you, and then together right now. Thank you. It's great to be here. Likewise. I enjoy very much being here and look forward to this conversation. I look forward to it as well. So we'll start off with the question of what is it that you, Michael, find most interesting about Yosha's work? And then Yosha will go for you toward Michael. Yeah, um, I really enjoy the uh, the breadth. So so I've been looking, I think I've probably read almost everything on your on your website, you know, the short kind of blog pieces and everything. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm a big fan of of the breadth of of tackling a lot of the different issues uh, that you do with respect to uh, you know computation and and cognition and AI and uh, you know and ethics and everything. I, I I really like that aspect of it. So, and Yosha. Yeah, uh, my apologies. My blog is not up to date. I haven't uh, d- uh, um, done any updates for a few years now on it. I think um, so. Of course, I'm still in the pro- uh, process of progressing and having new ideas. And the ideas that I had in recent years have a great overlap with a lot of the things that you are working on. And 
Um, when I uh, listened to your Lex podcast last night, there were many thoughts that you had that I had stumbled on um, uh, that I've never heard from anybody else. And so I found this very fascinating and thought, um, maybe let's look at some of these thoughts first and then go from there and expand um, beyond those ideas. But uh, I, for instance, found after thinking about how cells work, kind of obvious but missed by most people in neuroscience or in science in general is that every cell has the ability to send um, multiple message types and receive multiple message types and do this conditionally and learn under which conditions to do that and to modulate this. Also, every cell is an individual reinforcement learning agent. Single-celled animal that tries to survive by cooperating with its environment gets most of its rewards from its environment. And as a result, this means that Every cell can, in principle, function like a neuron. It can fulfill the same learning and information processing tasks as a neuron. The only difference that exists uh, with respect to neurons, or the main difference, is that uh, they cannot do this over very long distances because they are mostly uh, connected only to cells that are directly adjacent. Of course, neurons also only communicate to adjacent cells, but the adjacency of neurons is such that they have axons, parts of the cell, that reach very far through the organism. So in some sense, a neuron is a telegraph cell that uses very specific messages that are encoded in a way, um, like Morse signals in extremely short, high-energy bursts that allow to send messages over very long distances very quickly to move the muscles of an animal at the limit of what physics allows. So it can compete with other animals in search for food. And in order to make that happen, it also needs to have a model of the world that gets updated at this higher rate. So there is going to be an information processing system that is duplicating basically this cellular brain that is made from all the other cells in the body of the organism. And at some point, these two systems get decoupled. They have their own codes, their own language, so to speak. And But it still makes sense, I guess, to see the brain as a telegraphic extension of the community of cells in the body. And for me, this insight that um, I stumbled on just because uh, means and motive that evolution would equip cells with doing that information processing if the organism is long enough, uh, lives long enough, and if the cells share common genetic destiny so they can get attuned to each other in an organism, uh, that basically every organism has the potential to become intelligent. And uh, if it gets old enough to process enough data to uh, get to a very high degree of um, understanding of its environment in principle. So, of course, a, a normal a houseplant is not going to get very old with, uh, compared to us because its information processing is so much slower. So they're not going to be very smart. But at the level of ecosystems, it's conceivable that uh, there is quite considerable intelligence. And then I stumbled on this notion that um, our ancestors thought that one day in fairyland equals seven years in human land, which is taught in the old myths. And also, I just, I, at some point, I revised my notion of what a spirit is. For instance, a spirit is it's an old word for the operating system for an autonomous robot. And the, uh, when this word was invented, the um, only autonomous robots that were known were people and plants and animals and nation states and ecosystems, right? There were no robots built by people yet, but uh, there was this pattern of control in it that people could observe that was not directly tied to the hardware that was realized by the hardware, but disembodied in a way. 
And this notion of servant is something that we lost after um, the Enlightenment when we tried to deal with the um, wrong Christian metaphysics and uh, superstition that came with it and threw out a lot of babies with the bathwater. And suddenly we basically lost a lot of concepts, especially this concept of software that existed before in a way, this uh, software being a control pattern or a, a pattern of causal structure that exists at a certain level of coarse graining as some type of very, very specific physical law that we exist by looking at um, reality from a certain angle. And um, what I liked about your work is that you uh, systematically have focused on this uh, direction of what a cell can do, that a cell is an agent, and that levels of agency emerge in the interaction between cells. And, and you use very clear language and uh, clear concepts, and you obviously are driven by questions that you want to answer, which is unusual in science, I found. Like most of our contemporaries in science get broken at, uh, if it doesn't happen earlier during the PhD into people who apply methods in teams instead of people who join academia because they think it's the most valuable thing they can do with their lives to uh, pursue questions that they're interested in and want to make progress on. All right, Michael, there's plenty to respond to. Yeah, yeah, lots of lots of ideas. Um, yeah, I think I think it's very. Uh, your, your point is very interesting about you know what 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 it really what really fundamentally is the difference between neurons and other cells. Of course, evolutionarily, they're reusing machinery that has been around for a very long time since the time of bacteria, basically, right? So our multi our unicellular ancestors had a lot of the same machinery, and and even I mean, of course, axons are very can be very long. But but uh, there are sort of intermediate structures, right? There are tunneling nanotubes and things that allow cells to connect to maybe five or ten diameters, cell diameters away, right? So so not terribly long, but but also not immediate neighbors necessarily. So that kind of architecture has been around for a while, and people like Goral Sowell look at. Um, but a very brain-like electrical signaling in bacterial colonies. So this is, you know, I think I think evolution began to reuse this toolkit specifically of using this kind of communication to scale up um, uh, the computational and other kinds of um, other kinds of uh, tricks. Uh, yeah, a, a really long time ago, you know. And I like to I like to imagine that if somebody had come to the people who were inventing connectionism and the first, you know, sort of perceptrons and neural networks and so on, if somebody had come to them and said, oh, by the way, sorry, you know, we're, we're the biologists, uh, we, we, we got it wrong. It's not the thinking isn't in the brain, it's in the liver. And so then the question is, what would they do, right? Would, would, would they have changed anything about what they're doing? And they said, ah, now we have to rethink our model. Or would they have said, fine, who cares? Uh, this is exactly the same, the same model. Everything works just as well. So I often, I often think about that, that, that question, what exactly do we mean by, by neurons? And isn't it interesting that we are able to 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 steal most of the tools, the concepts, um, uh, the frameworks, the the math from neuroscience, and apply it to problems in other spaces. So not movement in three dimensional space with muscles, but for example, movement through amorphous space, right? Anatomical morphous space. The techniques can't tell the difference. We use all the same stuff: optogenetics, neurotransmitter signaling. We model um, active inference, and uh, uh, we see perceptual bistability. You name it. You know, we we take concepts from from neuroscience and we apply it out elsewhere in the body and uh generally speaking uh everything works exactly the same and that shows us i think what you were saying that there's this really interesting 
uh kind of um symmetry between these these uh, th that that a lot of the distinctions that we've been making are you know in terms of having different departments and different phd programs and other things that say you know this is neuroscience this is developmental biology a lot of these things are just not um uh not as not as firm distinctions as as, as we used to think yeah i suspect that people who insist on strong disciplinary boundaries do this out of of, of a protective impulse and uh, what I noticed by uh, studying many disciplines when I was young, uh, that um, the different methodologies are so incompatible across fields that um, when I was studying philosophy um, I, or psychology, I felt that computer scientists would be laughing about the methods that uh, each of these fields are using to justify what they're doing. Yeah. And uh, this, I think, is indicative of a defect. Because if you uh, take science into the current regime of um, regulating it entirely by peer review, there is no external authority. Even the grant authorities are mostly fields of uh, people who have been trained in the sciences in uh, existing paradigms and then are funding the continuation of those paradigms from the outside. This um, um, meta-paradigmatic thinking does not really exist that much in a peer-reviewed paradigm. And ultimately, when you do peer review for a couple generations, it also means that if your peers deteriorate, there is nothing who pulls your science back. And uh, what I miss specifically in a lot of the way which neuroscience is done is what you call the engineering stance. And uh, this engineering stance is very powerful and you get it automatically when you're a computer scientist because you don't really care what language is it written in what you care yeah. in is what causal pattern is realized yeah. and how can this be realized and how could i do it uh, how would i do it how can evolution do it what means are at its disposal and this determines the search space for the things that i'm looking for but this requires that i think in causal systems and this thinking in causal systems is com uh, not impossible to, uh, it's impossible not to do for a computer scientist, but uh, it is unusual outside of computer science. And once you realize that, it's it's very weird. Yeah. And suddenly you have notions that try to replace causal structure with, say, evidence. And then you uh, notice that, uh, for instance, evidence-based medicine is is not about uh, probabilities of how something is realized and must work. Like you see people on the cruise ship getting infected over distances and you think, oh, this must be airborne. But no, there is no peer controlled study. So there is no evidence that it's airborne. And when you look at, at its disciplines from the outside, like in, in this case, the medical profession or um, the um, medical messaging and decision making, or um, um, I get terrified because it directly affects us. And in terms of neuroscience, um, of course, uh, there's more theoretical for the most part. But uh, there must be a reason why it's for the most part atheoretical, uh, why there is no uh, causal model that clinicians can use to explain uh, what is happening in certain syndromes that people are exhibiting. And I noticed this when uh, I go to a doctor and um, even at a reputable institution like Stanford, that um, most of the neuroscientists at some level there, uh, most of the um, neurologists that I'm talking to are at some level dualists that they uh, don't have a causal model of, uh, of the way in which the brain is realizing things. And a lot of studies which uh, discover that very simple mechanisms like um, the ability of human beings to use grammatical structure are actually reflected in the brain. This is so amazing. Who would have thought? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, the developments that existed in computer science have led us on a completely different track. There is uh, the perceptron is vaguely inspired by 
what the brain might be doing, but I think it's it's really a toy model or a caricature of what cells are doing. Not in the sense that it's inferior, it's uh, amazing what you can boot force with the modern perceptron variations, right? The uh, current machine learning systems are mind-blowing in what they can do, uh, but they don't do it like biological organisms at all. It's, it's very different. The uh, cells do not form change in which they weight uh, sums of real numbers. They, uh, there is something going on that is roughly similar to it, but there's a self-organizing system that designs itself from the inside out, not by a machine learning principle that applies to, to the outside and updates weights after reading and comparing them and computing gradients to the system. So this perspective of local self-organization by reinforcement agents that try to trade rewards with each other, um, that is a, a perspective that I find totally fascinating. And I wish this would have come into, from neuroscience into uh, computer science, but it hasn't. There are some people which have thought about these ideas to some degree, but there's been very little cross-pollination. And I think uh, all this talk of neuroscience uh, influencing computer science is mostly wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also, uh, I find uh, this, you know, what you were saying about um, the different uh, disciplines, It's it's kind of amazing how... Uh, well, when I when I give a talk, um, I can always tell which department I'm in by by which part of the talk makes people uncomfortable and upset, and it's always <laughs> different depending on which department it is, right? So so there are things you can say in one department that are completely obvious, and you say this in the in another group of people, and they they throw tomatoes. They think this is just crazy. For instance, uh, for 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 instance, um, I could I could uh, say in you know in a in a neuroscience department, I could say uh, information can be processed is without changes in gene expression. You don't need changes in gene expression to process information because the 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 processing inside a neural network that runs on the physics of of action potentials, right? So, I mean, so right so so you can do all kinds of interesting information processing and you don't need genetic change transcriptional or genetic change for that. If I say the same thing in a molecular genetics department that say, "Hey, these cells could be processing tons of information long before the the transcriptome ever finds out about it." This is this is considered, you know, just just completely wild because because it's thought that 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 most of the hard work, or or in fact all of the hard work, is done in in gene regulatory circuits and things like that, right? There are other other examples. If I say, um, uh, here's a uh, here's a collection of cells that that communicate electrically to to remember a particular spatial pattern. Again, molecular cell biology. That's the, what, what do you mean? How can how can a collection of, of cells remember a spatial pattern? But again, in neuroscience or in in an engineering department, yeah, of course, uh, the, the, of course, they have electrical circuits that remember patterns and can com- do pattern completion and, and things like that. So um, you know, views of views of causality, views of uh, just just lots of things like that that are that are very obvious uh, to one group of people is is completely taboo uh, elsewhere. So that 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 distinction and 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 yeah and as as you as Joshua just said, um, it impacts it impacts everything. It impacts education. It impacts grants. You know, grant, uh, grant reviews because when these kind of interdisciplinary grants come up, the study sections have a really hard time finding people that can actually review them because what often happens is you'll find you, you'll you'll get a, some kind of computational biology grant. And you put a proposal, and you'll have some people on the on the panel who are biologists, and some people who are the computational folks. And it's very hard to get people that actually can appreciate both sides of it and understand what's happening together, right? So they will sort of each critique a certain part of it, and the other part they say, ah, I don't know what this is. And 
And as a result, grants like that don't tend to not have a champion, you know, one person who can say, no, I get I get the whole thing and I, I think it's really good or, or not. So, yeah, it's uh, even to the point where I, I'm often asked, uh, you know, when 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 people want to list me somewhere, they'll say, so so what 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 are you? You know, what kind of what kind of uh, what's your field? And I, I never know how to answer that question. You know, this day, it's been 30 years. I still don't know how to answer that question. I, I, I just can't boil it down to one. You know, it just wouldn't make any sense to, 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 to say any of the traditional, um, you know, the traditional fields. So what do you say, Yosha, when someone asks you what field you're in? And it depends on who's asking. So, uh, for instance, uh, I found it quite useful to uh, sometimes say, uh, uh, sorry, I'm not a philosopher. Um but uh, but this uh, or um, I'm not that interested in machine learning, and I'm I did publish papers in philosophy and in machine learning, but uh, it's not my uh, specialty in the sense that I need to identify with it, mm -hmm. and um, in some sense I guess that these categories are important uh, when you try to uh, write a grant proposal or when you mm -hmm. try to find a job in a particular institution and they need to fill a position. But um, for me, it's more um, what questions am I interested in? What is the thing that I want to make progress on? Or what is the thing that I want to build right now? And uh, I guess that in terms of the intersection, I'm a cognitive scientist. So I was asking Michael prior to you joining, Yosha, why is it, Michael, that you were doing podcasts? And if I understand correctly, part of the reason was because you think out loud and you like to hear the other person's thoughts and take notes and it spurs your own and firstly, like Michael, you can correct me if that's incorrect. And then secondly, Yosha, I'm curious for an answer for this, the same question. What is it that you get out of doing podcasts other than say some marketing for if you were promoting something, which I don't imagine you are currently? Uh, no, I'm not uh, marketing anything. I, uh, what I like about podcasts is the ability to uh, publish something in a format that is engaging to uh, interesting to people who actually care about it. I like this informal way of uh, holding on to some ideas and also like conversations as a medium to develop thought. It's this uh, space in which we can um, reflect on each other, look into each other's minds, interact with the uh, ideas of others in real time. Uh, the uh, production format of a podcast cr uh, creates a certain focus of the conversation that can be useful. And it's a, a pleasant kind of tension that focuses you to stay on task. And... Uh, I also found that uh, it's generally useful to some people. Like uh, the feedback that I get is that uh, people tell me I, I had this really de uh, important question, and I found this allowed me to make uh, progress on it, and I feel much better now about, about these questions. I uh, this cl clarified something for me that has plagued me for years and um, put me on track to solving it, or this has inspired the following work. So it's a form of uh, publishing ideas and getting them into circulation in, uh, in our global hive minds uh, that is uh, very informal in a way, but it's not useless. And also it uh, leaves me in, in, in this instance, at least of the work of cutting, editing and so on. Uh, but anyway, so I'm very grateful that you provide the service of curating our conversation and uh, putting it in a form that is useful to other people. Yeah, yeah. There's something. Well, there are two two things I was thinking of. One is that 
uh, you know, I mean, I have conversations with people all day long about these issues, right? So people in my lab, collaborators, whatever. And most, of course, the vast majority of those conversations are not recorded and they just sort of disappear into the ether. And then, then I, I take something away from it and the other person takes something away from it. But I've often, I've often thought that wouldn't it be, wouldn't, isn't it a shame that all of this is uh, just just kind of disappears, and it would be amazing to to have have a record of it. And, and of course, not every conversation is you know is gold, but 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 a lot of them are are useful and interesting. And uh, there are plenty of people that um, could could be interested and could 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 benefit from it. So so I really like this aspect that uh, we can have conversations, and then they're you know sort of canned and they're out there for. Uh, for 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 people who are who are interested, the the other kind of um, aspect of it, which I don't really understand, but but it's kind of neat, is that if when somebody when somebody asks me to uh, pre-record a talk, it takes a crazy amount of time because because I keep stopping and realizing ah, I could have said that better. Let me start from the beginning, and and it's just it's it's an incredible ordeal. Whereas something like this that's real time. Uh, I'm sure it has as many, you know, mistakes and things that I would have rather fixed later, but, but you can't do that. Right. So you just sort of go with it and that's it. And then it's done and you can move on. So, so I like, I like that real time aspect of it because it just, it just helps you to get the ideas out without getting hung up and, and, and trying to redo things 50 times. Yeah. It's a format that allows tentativity. Mm. If we uh, publish, yeah. we um, have a culture in, in sciences that uh, requires us to publish the things that we can hope to prove and make the best proof that we can. But uh, when we have anything complicated, especially when we take mm -hmm. our engineering stance, uh, we often cannot prove how things work. Instead, our uh, answers are in the realm of the possible and we need to discuss the possibilities. And uh, there is uh, value in understanding these possibilities uh, to direct our future experiments and the practical work that we do to see uh, what's actually the case. And uh, we don't really have a publication format for that. Right? We um, don't get neuroscientists to publish their ideas on how the mind works because nobody has a theory that they can prove. And as a result, there is basically a vacuum where theories should be. And the theory building happens informally in conversations that basically requires personal contact, which is a big issue once uh, conferences went virtual because that uh, contact diminished. And you get a lot of important ideas by reading the publications and so on. But this, uh, what could be, or connecting the dots, or possibilities, or ideas that might be proven wrong later, that we just exchange as in the status of ideas, that is something that has a good place in a podcast. Now, is this podcast, some, not this Toe podcast, but podcast in general, something new? So, for instance, I was thinking about this, and I, well, podcasts go back a while, and Rogan invented this long-form format or popularized it. However... On television, there are interviews, so there's Oprah, and those are long, one hour, there's 60 minutes. And then back in the 90s, there was a three and a half hour, it's essentially a podcast, it's like Charlie Rose, three and a half hour conversation, it's like a theolocution, with Freeman Dyson, Daniel Dennett, Stephen Jay Gould, like the Rupert Sheldrake, all of those on the same one format it's essentially a podcast talking about metaphysics i'm like man oh man i can't believe that got published and then also i think about it well did plato have the first podcast because he's just publishing these dialogues and you read them but it's not as if they're if maybe he would have published it in video i think plato was the first podcaster so is there something new about this format of podcasting that wasn't there before or what's new about it i think it's like it's like blogging uh blogging is also not new Right? Being able to write text that you publish uh, 
and uh, people can uh, follow what you are writing and so on did exist in some sense before, but uh, the internet made it possible to publish this uh, for everyone. You don't need a publisher anymore. And uh, you don't need a TV studio anymore. You don't need a broadcast station that is recording your talk show and sends it to an audience. There uh, is no competition with all the, all the other talk shows because uh, there is no limitations on how many people can broadcast at the same time. And uh, this allows an enormous diversity and uh, of thoughts and uh, small productions that are um, done at a very low cost, uh, lowering the threshold for putting something out there and seeing what happens. So in this sense, it's uh, the ecosystem that emerged as new because a variable change that uh, changed the cost of producing a talk show. All right. Michael, you agree? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, that and, and all of that. And also just the fact that, you know, uh, as, as, you, as you just said, uh, these kind of like long form things were fairly rare. So most of the time, if you're going to be in one of the traditional media, they tell you, okay, you've got, uh, you've got, th you know, three minutes, uh, you know, we're going to cut all this stuff and we're going to boil it down to three minutes. And this, this is often incredibly frustrating. And, and, and I understand, I mean, we're drowned in information. And so, so there is obviously a place for very short statement on things, but the kind of stuff that we're talking about uh, cannot be boiled down to, to, you know, TV sound bites or anything. It's just not. And so, and so, so the ability to have these long form things so that anybody who wants to really dig in, can hear what the actual thought is as opposed to something that's that's been just uh you know boiled into into a very um very very short statement i think is is invaluable just be, being able to have it out there for people to find what's some stance of yours some belief that has changed most drastically in the past few years let's say three and it could be anywhere from something abstruse and academic to more colloquial like i didn't realize the value of children or i overvalued children now i'm stuck with them like geez that was a mistake <laughs> Yeah, so something where I changed my mind was RNA-based memory transfer. And uh, I think it's a super interesting idea in this context because it's uh, close to uh, stuff that Michael has been working on and is interested in. Uh, there have been some experiments in the Soviet Union, I think in the 70s, uh, where um, scientists took planaria, uh, trained uh, them to learn something. I think they were uh, learned how to be afraid of electric shocks and things like that. And then they put their uh, brains into a blender, extracted the RNA, injected other planaria with it, and these other planaria had learned it. And I, I learned about this as a kid when I, in the 1980s, read Soviet science fiction literature. I grew up in Eastern Germany. And uh, the, the evil scientist uh, harvested uh, the brains of geniuses and uh, injected himself with RNA extracted from these brains and um, thereby acquired the skills. And even though I'm pretty sure uh, this probably doesn't work if you, tr uh, if you do it at this level, um, uh, uh, this was inspired by this original research. And I later heard nothing about this anymore. And so I dismissed it as uh, similar things as I read in uh, Sputnik and other Russian publications which create their own mythological universe about ball lightning uh, that is agentic and uh, possibly sentient and so on, and uh, dismissed this all as basically another universe of another Reader's Digest culture that is um, producing its own ideas that then later on get dissolved once science advances. Because everybody knows it's, it's synapses, it's connections between neurons that matter. The RNA is not that important for the information processing. It might ch change some state, but you cannot learn something by extracting RNA and re-injecting it into the next organism, because how would that work if it's done in the synapses? 
And uh, then recently there were some papers which replicated uh, the original research and has been replicated from time to time uh, in different types of organisms. Uh, but um, to, to my knowledge, uh, not in, of course, macaques or not even mice. But uh, so it's not clear if their brains work according to the same principles as planaria. But planaria are not um, uh, extremely simple organisms, only a handful of neurons. They're something intermediate. Right? So their main uh, architecture is different from ours. And uh, the functioning principles of their neurons might be slightly different. But it's worth following this idea and going down that rabbit hole. And uh, then I looked from my computer science engineering perspective, and I realized that there are always things about the synaptic story that uh, I find confusing because they're very difficult to implement. So, for instance, weight sharing. As a computer scientist, I require weight sharing. I don't know how to get around this. If I want to entrain myself as computational primitives in a local area of, of my brain, for instance, the ability to rotate something, which uh, rotation is some operator that I apply on a pattern that allows this pattern to um, be represented in a slightly different way to uh, have this object rotated a few degrees. But an object doesn't consist of a single point. It consists of many features that uh, all need to uh, get the same rotation applied to them using the same mathematical primitives. So how do you uh, implement the same operator across an entire brain area? Do you uh, uh, make many, many copies of the same pattern? And so computer scientists solve that with so-called convolutional neural networks, which basically use the same weights uh, again and again um, in different <clears> areas, <throat> using only training them once and making them available everywhere. And that would be very difficult to implement in synapses. Maybe there are ways... Uh, but it's not straightforward. Another thing is, if we see how uh, training works in babies, they learn something and then they get rid of the surplus synapses. Initially, they have much more connectivity than they need. And uh, when they get uh, after they've trained, they optimize uh, the way in which the wiring works by discarding the things they don't need to compute what they want to compute. So it's like uh, culling the synapses it does not... Uh, freeze or etch the learning into the brain, but it optimizes the energy usage of the brain. Another issue is that um, patterns of activation are not completely stable in the brain. They, in the cortex, if you look, uh, you find that they might be moving the next day or even rotate a little bit, which is also difficult to do with synapses. You cannot read out the weights and copy them somewhere else in an easy, straightforward fashion. And another issue is defragmentation. If you learn, for instance, your body map into a brain area, and then somebody changes your body map because you have an accident and lose a finger or uh, somebody gives you an artificial limp and you start to integrate this into your body map. How do you shift all the representations around? How do you make space for something else and move it? Or also initially when you set up your maps uh, via happier learning, how do you make sure that the neighborhoods are always correct and uh, you don't need to realign anything? And I guess you need some kind of realignment. And uh, all these things seem to be possible when you switch to a different paradigm. And uh, this, so if you take this RNA-based theory seriously, go down this rabbit hole, what you get is um, the neurons are not learning a local function over its neighbors, but they are learning how to respond to the shape of an incoming activation front, right, a spatial temporal pattern in their neighborhood. And they are densely enough connected, so the, the neighborhood is just a space around them. And uh, in this space, they basically interpret this according to a certain topology to say this uh, is 
uh, maybe a convolution that gives me two and a half D or that gives me two D or one D or whatever the type of function is that they want to compute. And uh, they learn how to, uh, to fire in, this, uh, in response to those patterns and thereby modulate the patterns when they're passed on. So the neurons act something like a self-modulating ether, so which uh, waveforms propagate that perform the computations. And uh, they store the responses to the distributions of incoming signals, possibly in uh, RNA. So you have little mixtapes, little tape fragments that they store in the SOMA and uh, that you can make more of very cheaply and easily if they are successful mixtapes and they're useful computational primitives that they discovered and they can distribute this to other neurons through the entire cortex. So neurons of the same type will gain the knowledge to apply the same computational primitives. And uh, that is something I don't know if the brain is doing that and of the human brain is using these principles or if it's using them a lot and how important this is and how many other mechanisms exist. But it's a mechanism that we haven't, to my knowledge, tried very much in AI and computer science. And it would work. Uh, there is something that is a very close analog that is um, a neural cellular automaton. You are, so you basically, instead of learning weight, uh, weight shifts or weight changes between adjacent neurons, what you learn is... Um, global functions that tell neurons on how to uh, respond to patterns in their neighborhood. And uh, these functions are the same for every point in your matrix. Right? And you can learn arbitrary functions in this way. And what's nice about it is that you uh, only need to learn computational primitives once. Our current neural networks need to learn the same uh, linear algebra over and over again in many different corners of the neural network because you need uh, vector algebra for many kinds of operations that we perform, like, for instance, operations in space where we shift things around or rotate them. And if they could exchange, exchange these useful um, uh, operations with each other and just apply an operator whenever the environment uh, dictates that this would be a good idea to try to apply this operator right now in this context, that could speed up learning. That could make uh, training much more sample efficient. Right? So it's uh, something super interesting to try. And this is one of the rabbit holes uh, I recently fell down and where I changed my thinking based on uh, some experiment from uh, neuroscience that uh, doesn't have very big impact for, for the mainstream of neuroscience, but uh, that I found reflected in uh, Michael's work with Planaria. Yeah, that's that's super interesting stuff. Um, I, I, I can s sprinkle a few a few details onto this. Um, uh, the original, so, so the original finding in Planaria was, um, was a guy named James McConnell in the, in, in at Michigan, actually in the U S and, the, and then that was in the sixties, the early sixties. And then there was some really interesting Russian work, um, that, that picked it up after that. Uh, we reproduced some of it recently in uh, using modern, uh, modern quantitative, uh, automation and, and things like this. But one of the, one of the really cool aspects of this, and, and there's a whole community, by the way, with, um, you know, people like, uh, Randy Gallistel and Sam Gershman and, um, you know, of course, uh, Glantzman, David Glantzman and people, people who are that, that, that story of memory in the, in the precise details of the, um, of the synapses that that story is really starting to crack actually for a number of reasons. But one of the, one of the cool things that, that was done in the Russian work, and it was also done later on by, um, uh, Doug Blackiston, who's, who's in my lab now as a staff scientist and other people is this, you can certain certain animals that go through larval stages right so you can taste so what the, the russians were using um beetle beetle larvae and uh and doug and other people used uh used used uh, moths and butterflies so what happens is you train you train the larva 
right? So, so, so here you've got a butterfly, a caterpillar. So, so this caterpillar lives in a two-dimensional world. It's a soft-bodied robot. It lives in a two-dimensional world. It eats leaves and so on, right? And so you train this thing for a particular task. Well, during metamorphosis, it needs to become a moth or butterfly, which it lives in a three-dimensional world. Plus, it's a hard-bodied creature, so so the controller is completely different, right? For running this, for running a caterpillar versus a butterfly. So, so during that process, what happens is the brain is basically dissolved. So most of the connections are broken. Most of the cells are gone. They die. Uh, you you put together a brand new brain. It self assembles. And you can ask all sorts of interesting philosophical questions of what it's like to be a creature whose brain is undergoing this massive change. Uh, but the information remains. And so one can ask, okay, this is, you know, certainly for computer science, it's, it's, it's amazing to have, a, com to have, a, to have a, a, a memory medium that can survive this radical re re remodeling and reconstruction. And there's there's the RNA story, but but also um, uh, you had mentioned you know does this does this work for for mammals? So there was a guy in the 70s and 80s. There was a there was a guy named George Ungar who did tons of he's got tons of papers. He uh, reproduced it in rats. So so his was fear of the dark, and he actually um, by 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 establishing this assay and then um, uh, you know fractionating their brains and 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 extracting this this uh, activity. Now he thought it was a peptide, not not RNA. So he he ended up with a with a thing called uh, scotophobin, which turns out to be I think an eight mer peptide or something. And the claim was that you can transfer this scotophobin, you can synthesize it uh, and then transfer it from brain to brain. And and that's and that's you know that's 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 what he thought it was. And then of course I think David Glantzman favors RNA again. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I think that's a that's a that's a super important story of how it is that this kind of information can survive uh, just just massive uh, remodeling of the of the cognitive substrate in planaria. What we what we did and and planaria, you know, they they have a true centralized brain. They have all, all the same neurotransmitters that we have. They're not a simple a simple organism. Um, what we did was McConnell's first experiments, which is to train them on something, and we train them to recognize a uh, laser etched um, kind of bumpy pattern on the bottom of the dish and to recognize that that's where their food was going to be found. So they made this association between this pattern and the, and, the, and getting food. And then we cut their heads off and, and we took the tails and the tails sit there for 10 days doing nothing. And then eventually they grow a new brain. And what happens is that information is then imprinted onto the new brain. And then, and then you can recover behavioral you know, uh, evidence that they remember the information. So, so that's pretty cool too, because it suggests that, well, we, we don't know if the information is everywhere or if it's in other places in the peripheral nervous system or in the, you know, in the nerve core that we, we don't know where it is yet, but it's clear that it can move around, that the information can move around in the body because it can be in the posterior half and then imprinted onto the brain, which actually drives all the, all the behaviors. And so thinking about that, I, I totally agree with that. This is this is a really important rabbit hole for asking. But but it has it, there's an interesting puzzle here, which which is which is this. You know, it's one thing to remember things that are e evolutionarily uh, adaptive, like fear of the dark and things like this. But imagine, and this hasn't really been done well. But imagine for a moment if we could train them to something that is completely novel. Let's say let's say we train them. Um, uh, three yellow light flashes means uh, take a step to your left. Otherwise, you get shocked. Something like that. And let's say they learn to do it. We haven't done this yet, but let's say let's say this could be could work. One of the big uh, puzzles is going to be when you extract whatever it is that you extract. Uh, let's say it's RNA or protein, whatever it is. You stick it into the brain of a recipient host, and in order for that memory to transfer, one of the things that the host has to be able to do is it has to be able to decode it. 
And in order to decode it, it's one thing if we share the same code book, and by evolution, we could have the same code book for things that come up all the time, like fear of the dark, fear, you know, things like that. But how do you how how would the recipient look at a a a, a weird sort of you know some some kind of crazy hairpin RNA structure and look at and and, and analyze it and be like oh yes that's three light flashes mm-hmm. and then uh, ah step to the left I see so you would need to be able to interpret somehow this this structure and convert it back to the behavior and for and for behaviors that are truly arbitrary that might be I I don't know actually how that would work and so so I think the frontier of this field is going to be to have a really uh, convincing demonstration of, of a transfer of a memory that doesn't have a plausible pre-existing shared evolutionary decoding, because because otherwise you have a re- you have a real puzzle as to how the as to how the the decoding is going to work. So this this idea and and then and then even without the transfer, you can also think of it a different way. Every memory is like a message is like basically a transplanted message from your past self to your future self, meaning that you still have to decode your memories, whatever your memories are in an important sense, you have to, you know, those engrams, you have to decode them somehow. So um, that, that whole issue of, of, of encoding and decoding, whatever the substrate of memory is, is, you know, maybe one of the most important questions there are. Mm-hmm. One of the ways I, we can think about these engrams, I think that there are, priors that uh, condition what kinds of uh, features are being spawned in which context. Mm. For instance, when we see mm. a, a new scene, the way that perception seems to be working is that we uh, spawn uh, lots lots of feature controllers that then organize into objects that are controlled at the level of the scene. And uh, this is basically like a game engine that is forming in our brain that mm. is creating a, a population of interacting objects that uh, are tuned to uh, track our perceptual data at the lowest level. So all the patterns that we get from our retina and so on uh, are samples, noisy samples um, that are difficult to interpret, but we are matching them into these hierarchies of features that uh, are translated into objects that assign every feature to exactly one object and every pixel, so to speak, to uh, exactly one, except in the case of transparency, and uh, use this to interpret the scene that is happening in front of us. And when we are in the dark, what happens is that we spawn lots of object controllers without being able to uh, disprove them because there is no data that forces us to reject them. And if you have a vivid imagination, especially as a child, you will fill this darkness automatically with lots of objects, many of which will be scary. And uh, so I think that lots of the fear of the dark doesn't need a lot of encoding in our brain. It is just an artifact of uh, the fact that there are scary things in the world which we learn to represent at an early age and that we cannot disprove them, that they just will just spawn. I remember this vividly as a child that whenever I had to go into the dark uh, basement to uh, uh, get uh, some food in our house uh, in the countryside, uh, that uh, this darkness automatically filled with all sorts of shapes and things and possibilities. And uh, it took me later to learn that uh, you need to be much more afraid of the ghost that can hide in the light. So what would be the implications of if you were able to transfer memory for something that's not trivial, so nothing that's like an archetype of fear of the dark, between a mammal like rats? Hear that sound? 
That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. And when I say transfer memory, I mean in this way that you blend up the brain or you, and also, can you explain what's meant by, I think I understand what it means to blend the brain of a planaria, but I don't think that's the same process that's going on in rats. Maybe it is. They, they, well, Ungar did exactly the same thing. He would train rats for particular tasks. He would extract the brain, literally liquefy to extract the chemical contents. Uh, he would then either inject the whole extract or a filtered extract where you would divide it up. You'd, you'd set, fractionate it. So here's the RNAs, here's the proteins, here you know other things. Uh, and, and then he would inject that liquid directly into the brains of recipient rats. So, you know, w- when you do that, you lose you lose spatial structure on the input because you just blended your brain, you, whatever spatial structure there was, you just destroyed it. Also, on the recipient, you just you just inject it. It's not you know, you're not finding that particular place where you're going to stick that you just inject this, this, this thing right in the middle of the brain, who knows where it goes, you know, where the fluid goes, it's sort of, there's no spatial specificity there whatsoever. So if that works, uh, what you're counting on is the ability of the brain to take up information via a completely novel route. So it's not information that's, for example, visual, right? Visual information that comes, comes in exactly the same place all the time, right? There are, there are, there are optic nerves that connect to the same place in the, in the brain. And that's where that information arrives. If the, if you bathe the brain in some sort of, uh, informational extract, you're basically asking the cells to take it up almost as as a primitive animal would with taste or touch, right? That that's kind of distributed all over the body, and you can sort of pick it up anywhere. And then you have to process this information. So 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 you've got those issues right off the bat, right? That that you've destroyed the incoming spatial structure. You you can't really count on where it's going to land in the brain. And and then the, the third thing is as as you just mentioned is the idea that especially if we start with information that isn't any that that is that is so um uh uh kind of uh, s- specific and um uh, you know kind of uh invented you know the three light flashes means move to your left i mean there's never there's never been an evolutionary reason to have that encoded like as as you just said having a fear of the dark is absolutely a natural kind of thing that show that that you can expect but and then there are many other things like that but 
but something something as as contrived as as you know three light flashes and then you move to your left there's no reason to think that we have a built-in way to recognize that so when you as a as a recipient brain are handed this weird uh molecule with a particular structure or, or a set of molecules uh being able to analyze that be having the cells that in your brain to or, or other parts of the body actually that could analyze that and recover that original information would be extremely puzzling. I actually don't know how that would work. And I, I'm a big fan of, of unlikely sounding experiments that have implications if they would work. So this is something that, uh, that I think sh should absolutely be done. And, um, and, you know, at some point we'll, we'll, we'll do it, but we haven't done it yet. But so how far did the research in my school, what is the complexity of things that could be transmitted via uh, this route? The I, as as I I don't remember everything that he did. Uh, the vast majority of he 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 did not um, go far to test all the complexities. What he tried to do was because as you can imagine, he faced incredible opposition, right? So 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 everybody you know sort of wanted to critique this thing. So he spent all of his time on he he picked one simple assay, which was this fear of the dark thing, and then he just he just bashed it for for twenty years. Uh, to just finally try to kind of crack that into the into the paradigm. He did not, um, as far as I know, do lots of different assays to try and make it more complex. I think uh, I think it you know it's it's very ripe for for investigation. Uh, this is the kind of did anyone else build upon his work? Um, no, not that I know. I mean, I mean, David Glansman is the best modern person who works on this, right? So he does a plesia and and he you know and he does RNA. So so he favors um, he favors RNA. Um, there's a little bit of work from um, Oded Rahavi in Israel with C. elegans. Uh, he's kind of looking into that. It uh, there's related work that has to do with cryogenics, which is this this you know this idea that that if if it is if 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 memories are a particular kind of dynamic electrical state, then some sort of cryogenic freezing is probably going to disrupt that. Whereas if it's a stable molecule, then it should survive. So. Again, I think there are people interested in that aspect of it, but I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure they've done anything with it. There's also uh, Gaurav uh, Venkataraman. I think he's oh, yes, at Berkeley. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he uh, told me that uh, he has been working on this for several years, but he said it's sociologically tricky. Yeah. And uh, that's to me fascinating that uh, we should care about that. Why, what does he mean by that? What do you care about what stupid people think? Uh, if this uh, possibility exists that this works, the upside is so big that it's criminal to not research this. I, I think it's a disaster that you can read uh, introductory textbooks on neuroscience and never ever hear about any of these experiments. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, everybody who gets the introductory stuff on neuroscience only knows about uh, information stored in the connectome, yeah. and uh, this uh, leads to, for instance, the Blue Brain Project. If that if uh, RNA-based memory transfer is a thing, then this entire project is doomed, right? because uh, you cannot get the story out of uh, just recording the connectome. Or the most of the research right now is focused on reconstructing the connectome as as it was circuitry, and hoping that we can get the functionality of yeah. uh, information processing and deduce the specificity of the particular brain what it has learned from the connections between neurons. But uh, what if it turns out this doesn't matter? What is if you just need uh, connections that are dense enough and so basically a stochastic lattice that is somewhat randomly wired and what matters is what the neurons are doing with the information that they're getting through this ether, through this lattice, right? This 
changes the entire way in which we need to look at things. And uh, if this possibility exists, and if this possibility is just 1%, but there are some experimental points in this direction, it is uh, not, um, it's ridiculous to not pursue this with high pressure and focus on it and support research that goes in this direction. Basically, uh, what's useful is not so much answering questions in science, it's discovering questions, it's discovering new uncertainty. Reducing the uncertainty is much easier than discovering new areas of where you thought that you were certain, but uh, that allow you to uh, get new insights. And uh, it seems to me that a lot of neuroscience is stuck, that it does not produce uh, results that seem to accumulate uh, in an obvious way towards a theory on how the brain processes information. So the neuroscientists uh, don't deliver uh, input to the uh, researchers in AI. The transformer is not the result of uh, reading a lot of neuroscience. It's really mostly the result of uh, people thinking about statistics of data processing. And uh, it would be great if we would uh, focus on uh, ideas that are promising and new and that have the power to shake existing paradigms. This is, you know, this is this is so important, uh, and it's not just neuroscience. In uh, developmental biology, we have exactly the same thing, and 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 I'll just give you two two very simple examples of it. Where, and I tell the students when I when I give talks to students, I say, well, "Isn't it amazing that that in in your whole course of biology and your developmental biology textbook, there's not a mention of any of this because it completely." Um, uh, just undermines a lot of the basic assumptions. So, so here's a couple of examples. One, one example is that as of trophic memory in deer. So there are species of deer that every year they regenerate, the, you know, the whole, so they make this antler rack on their heads, the whole thing falls off and then it regrows the next year. So th these two guys, Bobenik, which are a father and son team that did these experiments for 40 years, and, uh, and I actually have all these antlers in my lab now because when when the younger one retired, I, I asked him, he sent me all these things, all these antlers. The idea is this. Um, what you can do is you take a knife and somewhere in this branch structure, you you make a wound and the bone will heal and you get a little callus and that's, you know, that's it for that year. Then the whole thing drops off. And then next year. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. 
The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. It starts to grow and it will make an ectopic tine, an ectopic branch at the point where you injured it last year. And this goes on for five or six years and then eventually it, it goes away and, 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 and you get a normal, normal rack again. And so... The, the amazing thing about it is that, you know, as you, you can, you can, you can, tr- the, 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 the standard models for, for patterning for morphogenesis are these kind of um, gene regulatory networks and, and, you know, genetic um, kinds of, uh, kinds of uh, biochemical gradients and so on. You know, if you try to try to come up with an, with a, with a model for this, so for, for encoding an arbitrary point within a branch structure that your cells at the scalp have to remember for months after the whole thing is dropped off and then not only remember it, but then implement it so that when the bone starts to grow, something says, oh yes, that's the, you know, the, the start another, another time growing to your left exactly, exactly here, right? Come, trying to trying to make a model of this using the standard tools of the field is uh, just, just incredibly difficult. And this is that that's, and there are other examples of this, but this kind of non, non-genetic memory, that's just very difficult to explain with standard models. The other thing, which is any, I think an even bigger scandal is the whole situation with planaria. Um, Planaria, some species of planaria, the way they reproduce is they tear themselves in half. Each half regenerates the missing piece. And now you've got two. That's how they reproduce. So if you're going to do that, what you end up uh, avoiding is Weissman's barrier. This idea that when we get mutations in our body, our children don't inherit those mutations, right? So this means that any mutation that doesn't kill the stem cell in the body gets amplified as that cell contributes to regrowing the worm. So as a result of this, for, for 400 million years, these planaria have accumulated mutations. Their genomes are an incredible mess. Uh, their cells are basically mixoploid, that meaning meaning they're like a tumor. Every cell has a different number of chromosomes. Potentially, they just they just look look you know it just looks horrible. As an end result, you've got an animal that is immortal, it, it, incredibly good at regenerating with 100% fidelity, and very resistant to cancer. Now. This is all of this is the exact opposite of the message you get uh, from 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 a typical course through through biology, which is says that what is the genome for? The genome is for setting your body structure. And if you mess with the genome, that information goes away. You get uh, you get aging. You get cancer. Right? Why does the animal with the worst genome have the the the, the best anatomical fidelity? 
I mean, that's just, and, and I think we actually, as of, as of, you know, a few months ago, we actually, I think have some insight into this, but, but, but it's been bugging me for, for years. And this is the kind of thing that nobody ever talks about because it, it, it goes against the general assumption of what, of what genomes actually do and, and what they're for. And, you know, this, this complete lack of uh, correlation between the genome, in fact, an anti-correlation between the genome quality and the incredible ability of this, of this animal to, uh, to, 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 to have a healthy anatomy. Yeah, what what is that insight that you mentioned you acquired a few months ago? Preliminary. So so okay. Uh, in the in the name of uh, you know throwing out uh, kind of new unproven ideas, right? So this is you know this this is this is just my my conjecture. We've done we've done some we've done some computational modeling of it, which which I initially this was a. Um, uh, a, a very uh, clever uh, student that I work with uh, named Lakshwin, who uh, did did some models with me, and uh, uh, I initially thought it was a bug, and then I realized that no, actually, this is this is this is the feature. The idea is this: imagine. So, so we've been working for a long, a, a long time on a concept of um, competency among embryonic parts, and what this means is basically the idea that uh, there are there are um, homeostatic feedback loops among various cells and tissues and organs that attempt to reach specific outcomes in anatomical morphospace despite various perturbations. So the idea is that if you have a tadpole and you do something to it, whether by a mutation or by a, a drug or something, you do something to it where the eye is a little off kilter or the mouth is a little off, all of these organs pretty much know where they're supposed to be. They will try to minimize distance from other um, landmarks and they will remodel and eventually you get a normal frog so that so that they will they will sort of um uh, uh, uh recover the correct uh, anatomy despite starting off in the wrong position or even things like changes in the number of cells or the size of cells they're really good at getting their job done despite various changes right so okay so they have the, they have these competencies to to optimize specific uh, things like like their position and and their structure and things like that so uh so so that's so that's competency now now here's here's the interesting thing Imagine that you have uh, a species that uh, has some some degree of that competency. And so you've got an individual of that species comes up for selection. Uh, fitness is high, looks pretty good. But here's the problem. Selection doesn't know whether the fitness is high because his genome was amazing or the fitness is high because the genome was actually so-so, but the competency sort of made up for it. And now everything kind of got back to where it needs to go. So what the competency apparently does is shield information from evolution about the actual genome. It makes it harder to pick the best genomes because your individuals that perform well don't necessarily have the best genomes. What they do have is competency. So what happens and what happens in our simulations is that when if you start off with even a little bit of that competency, evolution loses some power in selecting the best genomes but it but what where all the work tends to happen is increasing the competency so then the competency goes up so, so the cells are even better at and the tissues are even better at getting the job done despite the the bad genome that makes it even worse that 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 makes it even harder for for evolution to see the best genomes which relieves some of the pressure on having a good genome but it basically puts all the pressure on being really competent so you've got this so so basically what happens is that uh, the 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 genetic fitness basically levels out at a really suboptimal level, and in fact, the the pressure is off of it, so it, so it's tolerant to all kinds of craziness. But the competency and the mechanisms of competency get get pushed up really high. So 
in many animals and but there are other factors that sort of push against this ratchet but it becomes it becomes a positive feedback loop it becomes a ratchet for optimal performance despite a suboptimal genome and so in some animals this sort of evens out at a particular point but i think what happened in planaria is that this whole process ran away to its ultimate conclusion the ultimate conclusion is the competency algorithm became so good that basically whatever the genome is it's really good at creating and maintaining a proper worm because it is already being evolved in the presence of a genome whose quality we cannot control so so in computer science speak it's kind of like um and steve frank put me onto this uh, analogy it's kind of like what happens in raid arrays when you have a nice raid array where the software makes sure that you don't lose any data the pressure is off to have really uh really high quality media and so now um, you can tolerate you can tolerate media with lots of mistakes because the, because the software takes care of it in the in the raid and the and the the architecture takes care of it so so basically what happens is you've got this animal where that uh, that runaway uh, feedback loop went went so far that the algorithm is amazing and it's been it's been uh, uh, evolved specifically for the ability to do what it needs to do even though the hardware is kind of crap. And 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 it's it's incredibly tolerant. So so this has a number of implications that that uh, to my knowledge have never been explained before. For example, in every kind every other kind of animal, you can you can call a stock center and you can get mutants. So you can get mice with with kinky kind of kink tails. You can get flies with red eyes, and you can get uh, chickens without toes. And you can get, you know humans come with as various uh, you know albinos and things. You can you can there's there's always mutants that you can get. Uh, Planaria, there are no there are no abnormal lines of planaria anywhere except for the only exception is our two headed line and that that one's not genetic that one's that one's bioelectric, so so isn't it amazing that 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 nobody has been able despite despite a hundred and you know I don't know one hundred and twenty ex- years of experiments with planaria nobody has isolated a, uh, a a line of planaria that is anything other than a perfect planaria and I think this is why I think it's because. They have been actually selected for being able to do what they need to do, despite the fact that the that the that the hardware is just very junky, and so so that's my that's my current that's my current current take on it, and 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 really uh, it puts more kind of more emphasis on 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 the algorithm and the decision making among that cellular collective of what what what, what you know what are we going to build and what's the algorithm for for making sure that we're all working to build the correct thing. So if you translate this idea into computer science, a way to look at it is imagine that you find some computers that uh, have um, hard disks that are very, very noisy and uh, where the hard disk basically makes lots and lots of mistakes in encoding things and bits often flip and so on. And you will find that these computers still work and they work in pretty much the same way as the other computers that you have. And uh, there is an orthodox sect of computer scientists that thinks uh, it is necessary that uh, every bit on the hard disk is uh, completely reliable or, or reliable to such a degree that you only have a mistake once every hundred trillion copies uh, And you can have an error correction code running on the hard disk at the low level that corrects this. And after some point, it doesn't become efficient anymore. So you need to have reliable hard disks to be able to have computers that work like this. But uh, how would these other computers work? And it basically means that you create a virtual structure on top of the noisy structure that is correcting for whatever degree of um, uncertainty you have or the degree of randomness that gets injected into your substrate. Uh, 
David uh, Dave Eckley has a very mm. nice metaphor for this. Do you know him? Maybe yeah, I know uh, he's, yeah. yeah, he's a I think a beautiful artist who is, explores complexity by tinkering with computational models. I really find his work very inspiring, and he has this idea of best effort computing. So he, in his view, our own nervous system is a best effort computer. It's one that does not rely on the other neurons around you uh, working perfectly. Uh, but uh, make an effort to be better than random. Mm -hmm. And uh, then you stack the improbabilities empirically by uh, having a system that evolves to uh, measure, in, in effect, the un uh, unreliability of its components and then stack the probabilities until you get the system to be deterministic enough to do what you're doing with it, what to do with it. Right? So you, uh, uh, if you have a system that is, as in the planaria, inherently very noisy where the genome is an unreliable witness of uh, what should be done in the body you just need to interpret it in a way that stacks the probabilities that is evaluating things with much more error tolerance and um, maybe this is always the case maybe mm. there is a continuum um, maybe not it's also possible that there is some kind of phase shift where you uh, switch from organisms with reliable genomes to organisms with noisy genomes and you basically use a completely different way to construct the organism as a result but it's a, uh, it's a very interesting hypothesis then mm. to see if if this is a, a radical thing or a gradual thing that happens in all organisms mm -hmm, to some mm -hmm. degree yeah what I also like about this uh, description that you give about how the organism emerges, it maps on uh, in some sense also in how perception works in, in our own mind. Mm. Mm. At the moment, machine learning is mostly focused on recognizing images so uh, or individual frames. And the, you feed in information frame by frame and the information is totally disconnected. A system like uh, DALI2 is trained by giving it several hundreds of millions of images. And they're disconnected. They're not adjacent images in the space of images. And a baby could not probably learn from giving 600 million images in a dark room and only looking at this and deduce the structure of the world from this, whereas Dali can, which gives testament to the power of our statistical methods and hardware that we have that far surpasses, I think, the combined power and reliability of brains, which probably would not be able to integrate so much information over such a big distance. For us, the world is learnable because its uh, adjacent frames are correlated. Basically, information gets preserved in the world through time, and we only need to learn the way in which the information gets transmogrified. And these transmogrifications of information means that we have a dynamic world in which the static image is an exception. The identity function is a special case of how the universe changes, and we mostly learn change. I just got visited by my cat, and my cat is, uh, has difficulty to recognize static objects compared to moving objects, mm, where it's much, mm, much mm. easier to see a moving ball than a ball that is lying still. Yeah. And it's because uh, it's much easier to segment it out the environment when it moves. Right. So the task of learning on a moving environment, a dynamic environment, is much easier because it imposes constraints on the world. And so uh, how do we represent a moving world uh, compared to a static world? The uh, semantics of features changes. And the, uh, an object is basically composed of features that are uh, that can be objects themselves. And the uh, scene is a decomposition of all the features that we see into... Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. 
Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. A complete set of objects that explain the entirety of the scene and the interaction between them. And causality is the interaction between objects, right? And uh, in a static image, these objects don't do anything. They don't interact with each other. They just stand in some kind of relationship that you need to infer, which is super difficult because you only have this static snapshot. And so uh, the features are classifiers that tell you how to uh, whether a feature is a hand or a foot or a pen or a sun or a flashlight or whatever, and how they relate to the larger scene in which, again, you have a static relationship in which you need to classify the objects based on the features that contribute to them. And you need to find some kind of description where you interpret the features, which are usually ambiguous and could be many different things, depending on the context in which you interpret them, into one optimal global configuration, right? But if, if the scene is moving, this changes a little bit. What happens now is that the features become operators. They're no longer classifiers that tell you how your internal state needs to change, how your world needs to change, how your simulation of the universe in your mind needs to change to track the sensory patterns. Right? So a feature now is a change operator, a transformation. And uh, the feature is in some sense a controller that tells you how the bits are moving in, in your local model of the universe. And they uh, organized in a hierarchy of controllers. And these controllers need to be turned on and off at the level of the scene. And they have a lot of flexibility once you have them. They can move around in the scene. They're basically now self-organizing, self-stabilizing entities. In the same way as the mouse is moving around in your organism, a feature can move around in the organism and shift itself around to communicate with other features until they negotiate a valid interpretation of reality. That's that's incredibly interesting because, uh, you know, as soon, as soon as you started saying that, uh, I was starting to think that the the virtualization that enables right so the the earlier part of what you were saying the virtualization of um uh the 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 information that allows you to um deal with with unreliable hardware and everything the 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 bioelectric uh circuits that we deal with are a great candidate for that because actually we see exactly that we see a a bioelectric pattern that is very resistant to changes in the details and make sure that everybody does the right thing under a wide range of you know different defects and so on but 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 even more than that the other thing that what, what you were just um emphasizing this the fact that we learn the delta right and that and that we're looking for a change very interesting if you if you pivot the whole thing from the temporal domain to the spatial domain so so in development what 
we we when we look at these bioelectric patterns now now these patterns are across space not across time so so unlike in neuroscience where everything is kind of in the temporal d- domain for neurons these things these are voltage st- static voltage patterns across tissue right across the whole thing so for the longest time you know we asked this question um how are these read out what how do cells actually read these because because one possibility early this was a very early hypothesis you know 20 years ago was that maybe the local voltage tells every cell what to be so it's like a paint by numbers kind of thing and every and and each voltage uh, you know uh, range, each voltage value corresponds to some kind of outcome that turned out to be false what we did find is that there and we have computational models of the, of how this works now um, what is read out is the delta, the difference between regions. It doesn't care. Nobody cares about what the absolute voltage is. What 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 is read out in terms of outcomes for for downstream cell behavior, gene expression, all that. What is actually read out is the voltage difference between two adjacent domains. So that is exactly actually what it's doing, just in the spatial domain. It 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 only keys off of the delta. And what is in what is learned from that is um, exactly just as as you as you were saying, it modifies uh, the controller for for what's downstream of that. And there may be multiple ones that are sort of moving around and cohabiting. I mean, it's a very it's a very compelling um, picture, actually, and way to look at some of the um, some of the simulations that that we've been doing about how the bioelectric data are interpreted by the rest of the cells. You know, it's very interesting. So Professor Levin used the word competence earlier, and I'd like you to define that. Yeah. Um, I, in order to define it, uh, I, I want to put out two, two concepts to, to this. One, one idea is that, to, to me, and this goes back to um, what we were talking about before as the engineering stance on things, I think that useful cognitive claims such as something you know when you say this system has whatever or it can whatever right as far as various types of cognitive capacities i think those kind of claims are really engineering uh, claims that is when you tell me that something is competent at a particular level maybe may, right so so you can think about like like wiener and rosenbluth scale of co- co- uh, cognition that goes from simple um ref- you know simple um passive materials and then reflexes and then all the way up to kind of second order metacognition and all that when you tell me that something is on that ladder and where it is what you're really telling me is if I want to predict its behavior or I want to use it in an engineering context or I want to interact with it or relate to it in some way, this is what I can expect. So, right. So that's what you're really telling me. So all of these terms, what they really are, are engineering protocols. So if you tell me that something has the capacity to do um, uh, uh, associative learning or, or whatever, what you're telling me is that, hey, you can do something more with this than you could with a mechanical clock. You can provide certain types of uh, stimuli or experiences, and you can expect it to do this or that afterwards. Or if you tell me that something is a, um, a, a, homeost- you know, a homeostat, that means that, hey, I can count on it to keep some variable in at a particular range without having to be there m- myself to control it all the way. It has a certain autonomy. Now, how much, right? And if you tell me that something is really intelligent and it can do X, Y, Z, then I know that, okay, you're telling me that it has even more autonomous behavior in certain contexts. So, so all of these terms, to me, what they really are, they're not, and, and that has an important implication. The implication is that they're observer-dependent. That 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 you you've picked some kind of problem space, you've picked uh, some kind of perspective, and from that problem space and that perspective, you're telling me that with with certain uh, given certain goal states, 
this system has that much competency to pursue those goal states. And different observers can have different views on this for any given system. So for example, somebody might look at a brain, like let's say a human brain and say, well, I'm pretty sure the only thing, this, this is a paperweight. So it's really pretty much just competent in going down gravitational gradients. So all it can do is hold down paper, that, that's it. And somebody else will look at it and say, ah, you missed the whole point. You missed the whole point. This thing has competencies in behavioral space and linguistic space, right? So these are all um, empirically testable uh, engineering claims about what you can expect the system to do. So when I say competency, what I mean is we specify a space, a problem space. And at the time when we were talking about this, the problem space that I was talking about was the, the anatomical morphous space. That was the space we were talking about. So, so the space of possible anatomical configurations and specifically navigating that morphous space. So you start off as an egg, or you start off as a damaged uh, limb or whatever, and you navigate that morphous space into the correct structure. So, so when I say competency, I mean, you have the ability to deploy certain kinds of tricks to navigate that morphous space with some level of uh, uh, performance that I can count on. And so the competency might be really low, or it might be really high, and I would have to make specific claims about what I mean. Here's an example of a, of a competency. And there are many, you know, if you just think about the behavioral science of navigation, there are many competencies you can think about. Does it, you know, does it, does it know ahead of time where it's going? Does it have a memory of where it's been? Or is it a very simple, you know, sort of reflex arc is all it has? Or, um, here, here's one one example of a pretty cool competency that um, that that a lot of biological systems have. If we take some cells uh, that are in the tail of a tadpole and we <clears throat> give them a particular, we 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 modify their ion channels uh, with, with such that they now acquire um, a, 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 the goal of navigating to an eye fate in, more, in, in this morphous space, meaning that they're going to make an eye. These things, in fact, will, will create an eye, and they'll make an eye in the tail, on the gut, wherever you want. But one of the cool, and so, and so that's already pretty, pretty cool, but, but, but one of the amazing aspects is if I only modify a few cells, not enough to make an actual eye, just, just a handful of cells, and, and we've done this, and you can see this work, one of the competencies they have is to recruit local neighbors that were themselves not in any way manipulated to help them achieve that goal. It's a little bit like in an ant colony, right? There's, a, there's a, this idea of recruitment in ants and termites is an idea of recruitment where, where individuals can, can recruit others and you know, talk about a flexible collective intelligence. This is it. This is, they, they, you, you've, you've re-specified the goal for that set of cells, but one of the things that they do without us telling them how to do it or having to micromanage it, they already have the competency to recruit as many cells as they need to get the job done. So that's a very nice, for an engineer, that's a very nice competency because it means that I don't need to worry about taking care of getting exactly the right number of cells. It, if, I'm, if I'm a little bit over, that's fine. If I'm way under, also fine. The system has that competency of recruiting uh, other cells to get the job done. So, so that's what I. So that's what I meant. So, to me, to make an um, any kind of a cognitive claim, you have to specify the problem space. You have to specify the goal towards which it's expressing competencies, and that may right. And 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 then and then you can make a claim about well, how competent is it to get to that goal? And somebody, I wish I could remember who it was, but somebody made this really nice analogy about kind of the ends of that spectrum. They said two magnets try to get together, 
and Romeo and Juliet try to get together. But the degree of flexible problem solving that you can expect out of those two systems is incredibly different. And within that range, there are all kinds of in-between systems that may be better or worse and may deploy different kinds of strategies. You know, can they avoid local optima? Can they have a memory of the, the, where they've been? Can they look further than their local environment? The million different things. So that's that's what I meant by competency. It's 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 a claim about what an, in an, what an engineer can expect the system to do, given a particular problem space and a particular goal that you think it's uh, trying to reach. So the way in which you use the word competency uh, could be treated as um, the capacity of a system for adaptive control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite, right. quite so fair. one uh, issue that I have with the notion of goals and goal directedness is that uh, sometimes you only have a tendency in a system to uh, go in a certain direction. And so it's it's directed, but the goal is something that can be emergent. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not. Sure. Sometimes there is an explicit representation in the system of a discrete event that is associated or a class of events with fulfilling a certain condition that the system has committed itself to. And if you don't have that, you don't have a proper goal. But in real systems, it's difficult to say. I mean, uh, do, when do we pursue goals, right? Sometimes we just are vaguely hungry, are moving towards the kitchen because we hope that something will opportunistically emerge that will deal with this vague tendency in our behavior. Uh, we could also say we have the goal of finding food, but uh, that is a rationalization that is maybe stretching things sometimes. Yeah. So uh, uh, sometimes a better distinction for me is going from a simple controller to an agent. And I try to, uh, because we are very good at discovering agency in the world, what does it actually mean when we discover agency and when we discover our own agency and start to amplify it? Um, by making models of who we are and how we deal with the world and with others and so on. The minimal definition of agent that I found, it's a controller for future states. The thermostat doesn't have a goal by itself, right? It just has a, a target value and a sensor that tells the deviation from the target value. And when that uh, exceeds a certain threshold, uh, the heating is turned on. And uh, if it goes below a certain threshold, the heating is turned off again, and this is it. So the thermostat is not an agent. It only reacts to the present frame. It's only a reactive system. Whereas an agent is proactive, which means that it's trying to um, not just um, minimize the current deviation from the target value, but the integral mm -hmm. over a time span, basically the future deviation. So it builds an expectation about how uh, an action is going to change this trajectory of the universe. And over that trajectory, it tries to figure out some measure of how big the compound target deviation is going to be. And so as a result, you get a branching universe and uh, the branches in this universe, some of these branches depend on uh, actions that are available to you and that translate into decisions that you can make that uh, move you uh, into more or less preferable world states. And suddenly you have a system with emergent beliefs, desires, and intentions. Mm -hmm. But to make that happen, uh, to move from a controller to agency, and agent just really being a controller with an integrated set point generator and uh, the um, ability to control future states, that requires that you can make models that are counterfactual. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. because uh, the future universe doesn't exist right now. It, you need to create a counterfactual universe, the future uh, model of the future universe, maybe even a model of the past universe that allows you to reason about possible future universes and yeah. so on. And to make these counterfactual causal models of the universe, you need to have a Turing machine. 
So without a computer, without something that is uh, Turing complete, that insulates you from the causal structure of your substrate, that allows you to build representations regardless of what the universe says right now around you, right? You, you need to have that machine. And the simplest uh, uh, system in nature that has Turing machine integrated is the cell. So uh, it's very difficult to find a, a system in nature that is an agent, that is not made from cells as a result. Maybe there are systems in nature that are able to uh, compute things and make models, but uh, I, I'm not aware of any. So the simplest one that uh, I know that can do this reliably is the cells or uh, arrangement of cells and that can possess agency, which is an interesting thing that uh, explains this coincidence that living things are agents and vice versa that uh, the agents that we discover are mostly living things, or there are robots that have computers built into them, or uh, virtual robots that have uh, that rely on computation. So the ability to make models of the future is the prerequisite for agency. And to make arbitrary models, which means uh, structures that embody uh, causal uh, simulations of some sort, that requires computation. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm on board with that with that ladder that that taxonomy uh, of of uh, of of goals and so on. One one interesting thing about uh, about goals, and as you say, some are emergent and and some are not. There's a there's an interesting uh, planarian um, uh, version of this, which is which is this. We we made this hypothesis about so so within planaria, you chop it up into pieces, and every piece regenerates exactly the right rest of the worm right so if it's if 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 you chop it into pieces each piece will have one head one tail so and then and then of course what happens is it stops when it when it may when it reaches a, a correct a planarian then then it stops and so so we started to think that there are two there are a couple of possibilities one possibility is that this is a purely emergent process and that the goal of rebuilding ahead is is a, is an emergent thing that comes about as a consequence of other things or could there be a an actual explicit representation of what a correct planarian is that serves as a set point, as an encoded, as an explicitly encoded set point for these cells to follow. And, and because it's a cellular collective, we, we, we're communicating electrically, we thought, well, maybe, maybe what it's doing is basically storing a memory of what, like you would in, in, a, in a neural circuit, you're, you're storing a memory of what it should be. So we started looking for this, and this is what we found. And this is, this is kind of, I think, one type of one one important type of goal in an in a goal seeking system is is a is a goal that you can rewrite without changing the hardware and the system will now pursue that goal instead of something else in a purely emergent system that doesn't work right if you have a a cellular automaton or a fractal or something that that does some kind of complex thing if you want to change what that complex thing is you have to figure out what the local rule how to change the local rules that's very hard in most cases but what we found in planaria is that we can literally using a voltage reporter die, we can look at the worm and we can see now the pattern, the, the, and it's a distributed pattern, but we can see the pattern that tells this animal how many heads it's supposed to have. And what you can do is you can go in and using a, a, a brief transient uh, manipulation of the ion channels with drugs, with ion channel drugs, that, and we have a computational model that tells you what those drugs should be, that briefly changes the electrical state of the circuit but the circuit is amazing. It's it it once you've changed that state, it holds. So so by default, it in a standard planarian, it always says one head. But but it's kind of like a flip flop in that when you you temporarily shift it, it holds, and you can push it to a to a state that says two heads. 
So now something very interesting happens. Um, two, two interesting things. One is that if you if you take those worms and you cut those into pieces, you get two-headed worms, even though the genetics are, the, the hardware is all wild type. There's nothing wrong with the hardware. All the proteins are the same. All the genetics is the same. But the electric circuit now says make two heads instead of one. And so this is in, in, an, in an interesting way, it is an explicit goal because you can rewrite it because much like with your thermostat, there's an interface for changing what the goal state is. And then you don't even need to know how the rest of the thermostat works. As long as you know how to use your, how to, how to modify that interface, the, the system takes care of the rest. The other interesting thing is, and, and, and I love what you said about the counterfactuals, what you can do is you can change that electrical pattern in an intact worm and not cut it for a long time. And if you do that, when you look at that pattern, that is a counterfactual pattern because that two-headed pattern is not a readout of the current state. It says two heads, but the animal only has one head. It's a normal planarian. So the, that, that pattern memory is not a readout of what the animal is doing right now. It is a representation of what the animal will do in the future if it happens to get injured. And you may never cut it. Or you may cut it, but if you do, then the pattern becomes. Uh, then the cells consult the pattern and build a, a two-headed worm, and then it becomes a, a you know the current state. But until then, it's this weird like primitive. Um, uh, it's a primitive counterfactual system because it's able to a body of a planarian is able to store at least two different representations of what a probably many more, but we found two so far, what a correct planarian should look like. It can have a memory of a one-headed planarian or a memory of a two-headed planarian. And, and, and both of those can live in exactly the same hardware in exactly the same, the same body. The other kind of cool thing about this, and um, uh, I'll just mention this, even though this is, this is, you know, um, disclaimer, this is not published yet. So this is, uh, you know, take, take all this with a grain of salt. The, the, but, but the, the, the latest thing you can do is you can actually treat it with some of the same compounds that are used in uh, neuroscience in, in humans and in rats as uh, memory blockers. So, so things that block recall or, or, or memory consolidation. And when you do that, you can make the animal forget how many heads it's supposed to have. And then they basically turn into a featureless circle when, when uh, you can just wipe, you can just wipe the, the, the pattern memory completely with it using exactly the same techniques you would use in a, in a, in a, in a rat or a human. They just forget what to do when they turn into they they fail to break symmetry and they just become a, a, a circle. So, yeah, uh, I, I think I think what you were saying is 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 right on with with this this ability to uh, store counterfactual states that are not true now but may represent aspects of the of the future. I think that's that's a very important capacity. Another important notion is a constraint and uh, constraint satisfaction. A constraint is a rule that tells you uh, whether two things are compatible or not. And the constraint is satisfied if they're compatible. So you basically have a number of conditions that you establish by measuring them somehow. For instance, uh, whether you have a head or multiple heads. And uh, you try to find a solution where you can end up with exactly one head. And if you end up with exactly one head based on the starting state, then you have managed to find a way to satisfy your constraints. And so in, in a sense, uh, what you call a, a competency is the ability of a system to take a region of the of states of the uh, space of the universe, some, basically some local region of possible state that the universe can be in, and uh, move that region to uh, a, a smaller region that is acceptable. So there basically there is a region on the universe state space where you have only one head. And there's a larger region where you don't have any head at all, but the starting state of your organism. Mm -hmm. And then you try to get from A to B. 
So you get from this larger region to the one in which you yep. want to be. Of course, if you have one head, you want to stay in the region in, in which you have one head, which of course is usually much easier. But the ability basically to condense the space, to get uh, to bridge over many regions into the target region is uh, what comes down to this, this is what this competency is. So the system basically has an emergent wanting to go in this region and it's trying to move there. And so there are constraints at the level of the substrate Uh, that are battling with the functional constraints that the organism wants to realize to fulfill its function. And sometimes mm -hmm. uh, you cannot satisfy this and you end up with two heads because you don't know which one you get rid of or how to uh, digest one of the heads and so on. And you end up with some Siamese twin. And uh, so this, this is an interesting constraint that you have to solve for when you are uh, dealing with reality and how you battle with the substrate until you get to the functional solution that you evolve for. Yeah, it's it, that's that's interesting. I mean, we we we've also found that there are so 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 we look at exactly this uh the 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 navigation, this kind of navigation in morphous space, how you get from here to there and what paths are possible to get from here to there and so on. One of the things that we found is that there are regions of that space that belong to other species. And you can you can push a a planarian with a standard wild type genome into uh, the goal state of a completely different species. So we can get them to grow a head. So there's a species that normally has a triangular head. You can make it grow a round head, like a like a like a different species or or a flat head or whatever. Uh, uh, you can. So those are about 100, 100 to 150 million years of evolutionary distance, and you can do it. You know, within within a few days, just by um, by 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 perturbing that electrical circuit so that it lands in the wrong space, and then outside of that, there are regions that don't belong to planaria at all. So planaria are normally nice and flat. We can make we've made planarians that are they look like a they are a cylinder like a like a ski cap. You know, they become like a like a like a hemisphere or uh, really weird ones that are spiky. They're they're like a sp ball with spikes on it. There are all kinds of other. Uh, regions in that space that you can that you can push them to, uh, and so and those are new. Those are not species that they diverge from. Those are new. No species. one's ever said, to my knowledge, that's yes. There's no such. There are no such species. Um, it's easier to you know, and we've done this in frog too. You can you can push tadpoles to make to look like those of other species, um, or you can make. You know, that, I mean that that's a whole interesting thing for evolution, anyway, right? What, what one species birth defect is a pretty is a perfectly reasonable different species. So we can make z we can make tadpoles with a rounded tail, which for a xenopus tadpole is a is a terrible tail, but for a zebrafish that's exactly the right tail. So you can sort of imagine imagine right evolution uh, manipulating the different information processing, whether whether by the bioelectrical circuits or other other machinery. Uh, that help the system explore that morphous space and you know start to uh, start to start to move away from from whatever the you know that speciation is moving away from your standard attractor that you usually land on. How does this relate to intelligence? Well, intelligence is the uh, ability to make models and and usually in the service of control. At least that's the way I would uh, explain intelligence. There are other definitions, but it's the simplest one that I found. It also accounts for the fact that many intelligent people are not very good at getting things done. Uh, it's, it's basically intelligence and goal rationality are somewhat orthogonal. Uh, excessive intelligence is often a prosthesis for uh, bad regulation. Have you read The Intelligence Trap? No. 
Okay. The author makes a similar case, and he's coming on shortly, essentially saying that there are certain traps that people with high IQs have that are not beneficial for them as biological beings. They're mainly cognitive biases. So for instance, it's extremely interesting. So let's just give one of the biases to say you're either liberal biased or you're conservative biased. And then you were to give a test where there's some data that says that on the surface, it shows that the data shows that gun control prevents gun violence. Well, the liberals are more likely to say, yes, this data does show that. But if you're conservative, you're more likely to find, oh, actually the subtleties in the data show that gun control increases gun violence. And then they thought, okay, well, let's just switch this to make it such that the superficial data suggests that gun control increases violence. You need to look at the data carefully to show that it actually prevents violence. Well, the conservatives in that case would be more quickly to say, oh, look, the gun control increases violence. And the liberals would find the the loophole. Well, that's one of the reasons why I don't mind interviewing people who are biased, because to me, they're more able to find a justification for something that, that may be true, but I or and, and others are so, well, we all have our own biases. We're so inclined in some other direction that we just were blind to it. But anyway, the point is to affirm what you're saying, Yosha. Okay, so I know Michael has a hard cutoff at 2 p.m. So I want to ask the question for AGI, that is artificial general intelligence. It seems as though we're far away or that our current methods of machine learning and what we learn in neuroscience or or what we learn in computer science, there's something that we're missing some paradigm shift or we're missing some new techniques. Is there something from Michael's work? Yosha, I'm asking you this and then Michael, please respond. Is there something from Michael's work that you think can be applied to the development of AGI if such a creature mind can exist? Because there are some arguments against it. So first of all, I don't know how far we are for AGI. It could be that the existing paradigms are sufficient to brute force it, but we don't know that yet. Right? So we are going to find out in the next few months. Uh, but it could also be that we need to rewrite the stack to build systems that uh, work in real time, that are entangled with the environment, that can build uh, shared representations with the environment, and uh, that we need to rewrite the stack. And uh, there are actually a number of questions that I'd like to ask Michael. Um, what uh, I noticed that Michael is uh, wisely reluctant to use certain words like consciousness a lot. And it's because a lot of people are very opinionated about what these concepts mean. And you first have to deal with these opinions before you come down to saying, oh, here I have the following proposal for implementing reflexive attention as a tool to form coherence in a representation. And uh, this uh, leads to the same phenomena as that, what you call consciousness. Right, so uh, that is is a detailed discussion. Maybe you don't want to have that discussion in every forum, and rather than uh, that, and then having this discussion, you may be looking at uh, how to create coherence using a reflexive attention process that uh, makes a real time model of what it's attending to, and the fact that it's attending to it, so it remains coherent, but for itself. So th this is. Um, concrete thing, but uh, I wonder how to implement this in a self-organized fashion if the substrate that you have are individual agents. And there is a similarity here between societies and brains and social networks. That is, uh, if you have self-interested agents in a way that try to survive and that get their rewards from other agents that are similar to them structurally, um, and they have the capacity to learn to some degree. And uh, that capacity is sufficient so they can, in the aggregate, learn arbitrary programs, arbitrary fu computable functions. Um, and uh, it's sufficient enough so they can converge on the functions that they need to, to, as a group, 
reap rewards that uh, apply to the whole group because they have a shared destiny, like the poor little cells that are locked in the same skull and they're all going to die together if they fuck up. So they have to get along. They have to form an organization that is distributing rewards among each other. And this gives us a search space for possible systems that can exist. And the search space is mostly given, I think, by the minimal agent that is able to learn how to distribute rewards efficiently while doing something useful, using these rewards to change how you do something useful. So you have an emergent form of governance in these systems. There's not some centralized control that is imposed on the system from the outside as an existing machine learning approaches and AI approaches. But this exists only as an emergent pattern in the interactions between the individual small units, small reinforcement learning agents. And this control architecture leads to hierarchical government. It's not fully decentralized in any way. There are centralized structures that distribute rewards, uh, for instance, via the dopaminergic system in a very centralized top-down manner. And that's because every regulation has an optimal layer where it needs to take place. Some stuff needs to be decided very high up. Some stuff needs to be optimally regulated very low down, depending on the incentives. Game theoretically, a government is an agent that imposes an offset on your payoff matrix to... Um, make your Nash equilibrium compatible with the globally best outcome. Right, so to, to do this, you need to have agents that are sensitive to rewards. It's super interesting to think about these reward infrastructures. Elon Musk has bought Twitter, I think, because he has realized that Twitter is the network of, among all the social networks that is closest to a global brain. It's totally mind-blowing to realize that he basically trades a bunch of frothy stock for the opportunity to become Pope. Pope of a religion that has more active participants than Catholicism even, right? Daily practicing people who enter this church and think together. And it's a thing that is completely incoherent at this point, almost completely incoherent. There are bubbles of sentience, but for the most part, this thing is just screeching at itself. And now there is the question, can we fix the incentives of Twitter to turn it into a global brain? And Elon Musk is global brain pilled. He believes that this is the case. And that's the experiment that he's trying to do, which makes me super excited, right? This might fail. There's a very big chance that it fails. But there is also the chance that we get a global brain, that we get emergent collective intelligence that is working in real time using the internet in a way that didn't exist before. So super fascinating thing that might happen here. And uh, it's fascinating that very few people are seeing this that Elon Musk is crazy enough to to spend $44 billion on that experiment just because he can and has nothing else to do and thinks it's meaningful to do it, more meaningful than having so much money in the bank. Right? So uh, this makes me interested in uh, this testbed for rules. And this is something that translates into the way in which society is organized because social media is not different from society, not separate from it. Problem of governing social media is exactly the same thing as governing a society. You need a right form of government, you need a legal system, ultimately you need representation and all these issues, right? It's not just a moderation team. And uh, the same thing is also true for the brain. What is the government of the brain that emerges in what Gary Edelman calls neural Darwinism, among different forms of organization in the mind, until you have a model of a self-organizing agent that discovers that what it's computing is driving the behavior of an agent in the real world and discovers a first-person perspective and so on. How does that work? How can we get a system that is looking for the right incentive architecture? And that is basically the main topic where I, I think that where uh, Michael's research is pointing from from my perspective, that is super interesting. We have this overlap between 
the looking at cells and looking at the world and uh, of humans and animals and stuff in general. Yeah, yeah, so su super interesting. Um, we so so Chris Fields and I are are working on a model of of, of on a framework to understand the the where where um, collective agents first come from, right? Uh, well, how do, how autopoiesis? How do they organize themselves? And we've 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 got a model already about this idea of of rewards and cells rewarding other cells with with neurotransmitters and things like this to keep copies of themselves nearby because they're the most predictable. So so this idea of reducing surprise. Well, what's the least surprising thing? It's a copy of yourself, and so you can sort of this. Chris calls it the imperial model of multicellularity. But one thing to really think about here is. Imagine an embryo. This is a, um, a, a an amniote embryo. Let's say a human or or a bird or something like that. And what you have there is you have a flat disk of eh, fifty to ten thousand, fifty thousand cells. And when people look at it, you say, "What is that?" They say it's an embryo, one one embryo. Well, the reason it's one embryo is that under normal conditions, what's going to happen is that in this in this disk, one cell is well, there's symmetry breaking. One cell is going to decide that it's the organizer. It's going to do local activation, long range inhibition. It's going to tell all the other cells, you're not the organizer. I'm the organizer. And as a result, you get one special point that uh, begins uh, the, a process that's going to walk through this um, amorphous space and create a particular large scale structure with two eyes and four legs and whatever else it's going to have. But here's the interesting thing. Those cells that's not really one embryo. That's that's um, a, a weird kind of Freudian ocean of potentiality. What I mean by that is if you take, and I did this as a grad student, you can take a needle and you can put a little scratch through that blastoderm, put a little scratch through it. What will happen is the cells on either side of that scratch don't feel each other. They don't hear each other's signals. So that symmetry breaking process will happen twice, once on each end. And then when it heals together, what you end up with is two conjoined twins. Because, because each side organized an embryo, and now you've got two conjoined twins. Now, many interesting things happen there. Uh, one is that every cell is some other cell's external environment. So in order to make an embryo, you have to self-organize a system that uh, puts an arbitrary boundary between itself and the outside world. You have to decide where do I end and the world begins. And it's not given to you, as, uh, you know, somehow... Um, from outside for a biological system, every biological system has to figure this out for itself. Unlike modern robotics or whatever, where it's very clear, here's where you are, here's where the world is, these are your effectors, these are your sensors, here's the boundary of the outside world. Now, living things don't have any of that. They have to figure out all of this out from scratch. The benefit to uh, being able to figure it out from scratch, having to figure it out from scratch, is that you are then compatible with all kinds of weird initial conditions. For example, if I separate you in half, you can make two. You can make twins. You don't. You don't have a failure. You know, a total failure because now you have half the number of cells. You can make twins. You can make triplets. Probably, you know, many more than that. So, if you ask the question, you look at that um, blastoderm and you ask how many individuals are there, you actually don't know. It could be zero. It could be one. It could be some small number of, of individuals. That process of autopoiesis has to happen. And 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 here are all the here are a number of things that that are uniquely biological that that I think relate to the kind of flexibility plasticity uh, that you need for 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 AGI in whatever space it doesn't have to be the same space that we work in but your your boundaries are not set for you by an outside creator you have to figure out where your boundaries are where is the outside world so you make hypotheses about where you end and where the world begins 
you don't actually know what your structure is, kind of like Bongard's robots from 2006, where they didn't know their structure and they had to make hypotheses about, well, do I have wheels? Do I have legs? What do I have? And then make a model based on uh, basically babbling, right? Like the, the way that babies babble. So so you have to figure out, you have to make a model of of where the boundary is. You have to make a model of what your structure is. You are energy limited, which most the most AI and robotics nowadays are not. When you're energy and time limited, it means that you cannot uh, pay attention to everything. You are forced to coarse grain in some way and lose a lot of information and compress it down. So you have to you have to choose a lens, a coarse graining lens on the world, and figure out how you're going to represent things. Um, uh, and and all of this has to and and there, there are many more things uh, that that we could talk about. But all of these things are self constructions. From the from the very beginning, and and then and then you have to you have to uh, you you start to act in various in various spaces, which again are not predefined for you. You have to solve problems that are metabolic, physiological, anatomical, maybe behavioral if you have muscles. Um, but but nobody's telling nobody's defining the space for you. Um, for example, if you're a bacterium, and Chris Fields points this out, if you're a bacterium and you're in some sort of um, chemical gradient, you want to increase the amount of sugar in your environment. You could act in three-dimensional space by physically swimming up the gradient, or you can act in transcriptional space by turning on other genes that are better at uh, converting whatever sugar happens to be around, and that solves your your metabolic problem instead of right. So you have these hybrid problem spaces. So all of this, I think, what what contributes in a strong sense to all the things that that we were just talking about is the fact that everything is in in biology is self-constructed from the beginning. You can't rely on. You don't know ahead of time when you're a new creature born into the world. And we have many, I have many examples of, of, of this kind of stuff. You don't know how many cells you have, how big your cells are. You can't count on any of the priors. So you have this like weird thing that evolution makes these, these machines that don't take the past history too seriously. It doesn't overtrain on them. It makes problem-solving machines that use whatever hardware you have. This is why we can make weird chimeras and, and, and cyborgs, and, and you can mix things and, and mix and match biology in every, in every way with other living things or with with non-living things because all of this is interoperable because it does not make assumptions about what you have to have it tries to solve whatever problem is given it plays the hands that, that it's dealt and um that 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 results in uh that, that assumption that you cannot uh you cannot trust what you come into the world with you cannot assume that the hardware is what it is it gives rise to a lot of that intelligence i think and a lot of that plasticity so if you translate this into necessary and sufficient conditions, what seems to be necessary for the emergence of a general intelligence in a bunch of cells or units is uh, that basically each of them is a small agent, which means it's able to mm -hmm. behave with an expectation of minimizing future target value deviations. So it learns that the configuration is environment that single anticipated reward. Next thing, these units need to be uh, not just agents, they need to be connected to each other. And they need to get their rewards or proxy rewards, something that allows them to anticipate whether the organism is going to feed them in the future mm. from other units that also adaptive. So you need multiple message types and the ability to recognize and send them with a certain degree of reliability. Uh, what else do you need? You need enough of them, of course. Uh, what What's not clear to me is how deterministic do the units need to be? How much memory do they need to be? Or what way, how, how much state can they store? How much, uh, uh, how deep in time does their need, recollection need to go 
and how much forward in time do they need to be able to form expectations. So basically, how large is this um, activation front mm. that they can, or this uh, the shape of the distribution that they can learn and uh, have to learn to make this whole thing happen. And so basically the conditions that are necessary are relatively simple. If you just wait for long enough and get a, such a system to percolate, I imagine that the compound agency will at some level emerge on the system, just in a competition of um, possibilities. In the same way as emergent agency has emerged on Twitter in a way with um, uh, devoke religion in a way, that people were starting to shift around their behavior to maximize likes and retweets. And there was no external reward that was given on Twitter. So as a result, a local structure emerged, a local agency that was shifting the rewards by itself, an emergent causal structure that was in some sense in downward causation, going to organize groups of people into uh, behavioral things. It's really as, uh, uh, interesting to look at Twitter as something like a mind at some level. Right? It's working slower, but it would probably be possible to make a simulation of these dynamics in a more abstract way and to use this for arbitrary problem solving. And so what would an experiment look like in which we uh, start with these necessary conditions and narrow down the sufficient conditions? Yeah, 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 very, 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 right on. And that's, I mean, yeah, we're, we're doing some of that stuff, uh, some of that kind of modeling. Um, I apologize. I've got to, I've got to, um, I've got to run here. Thank you both for coming out for this. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you for bringing us together. So a great, great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So yeah, thank you. Likewise. Enjoyed yeah. it very much. Thank you, Kurt. Yeah, too. Yeah, thank yeah, you, Thank Michael. you so much, Kurt. Thanks, Joshua. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked on that like button, now would be a great time to do so as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting theoriesofeverything.org. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. Every dollar helps far more than you may think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough. Thank you.